Welcome, welcome uh, to the umpteenth annual uh, lecture series on Islam and uh, democracy. I've forgotten, I tried to count how many times it is now that we have done this annually. It's become quite a long-running series, probably the fifth or sixth year uh, that we have done this. Uh, it's really great, and it's really great to start out with such uh, a large crowd. Um, I know that uh, the reason we have such a large crowd uh, here today is because of the fame of the speaker. Oh. <laughs> so, so I won't, I won't spend too much time uh, here introducing him, except to say that I, I personally uh, just met him for the first time a few minutes ago, but, but I immediately felt that I recognized him because I've seen him so many times on CNN, ABC, BBC, uh, uh, maybe Fox too, uh, <laughs> certainly the Lair News Hour uh, as well. So. Uh, Fawaz Georges has become a very familiar figure uh, to all of us who are trying to follow both the politics uh, of the Muslim world, uh, but also the specific issue that he is focused on so much, which is uh, the jihadi issue. Uh, so let me uh, go through the introduction here uh, uh, rather quickly so that we can hear what he has to uh, say. Fawaz Georges is um, Christian A. Johnson Chair in International Affairs and Arab and Muslim Politics at Sarah Lawrence College in New York. His special interests include Islam and the political process, jihadist movements, Arab and Muslim politics, American foreign policy uh, toward the Muslim uh, world, the modern history of the Middle East, uh, and so forth. He is author of Journey of the Jihadist, uh, selected, uh, uh, and The Far Enemy, Why Jihad Went Global. Uh, the Washington Post selected The Far Enemy as one of the best 15 books published in the field in 2005. This is where the fame comes from. This is why the fame is real here. Um, uh, Journey of the Jihad has spent four months on the best-selling list of Barnes & Noble and Foreign Affairs magazine. Uh, Fawaz has just, this is the interesting part for us today, has just returned from a 15-month field study in the Middle East where he interviewed hundreds of civil society leaders, opinion makers, activists, and radical Islamists in the Muslim world and in Muslim communities in Europe. So he's writing two books based upon these experiences, and we are going to hear today, I believe, uh, about one of these. Uh, please welcome Fawaz Churches. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm really delighted to be here, and um, I want to thank you for having me. Um, here today. Um, as you know, uh, the title of my topic, uh, The Future of Islamist Militancy, and I, I, uh, a historical and theoretical footnote, it's really a footnote because this is a huge topic. And uh, I don't pretend uh, to have answers to whether, uh, uh, to the future of Islamist militancy. What I want to do uh, is to frame the question of the Islamist militancy in terms of what I call the conceptual flaws. Thanks, sorry. The conceptual flaws in American foreign policy about Islamist militancy. And also uh, try to talk about trends, historical and sociological trends uh, within the Islamist movement, not just the jihadist movements, uh, and then conclude with some big points, some conceptual points about where do we go from here? Uh, what has happened? Uh, how will the Islamist movement or the jihadist movement evolve in the next uh, decade or so? Uh, let me start first by saying is that uh, 
and um, I, I think uh, this is a cliche, uh, there is a fundamental conceptual flaw um, about uh, Islamist militancy, about uh, jihadism, um, about al-Qaeda, about the so-called uh, uh, the war on terror. I mean, I, this is, we're using various terms. I use the term Islamist militancy or Muslim militancy. Uh, some people use terms like terrorism and the war on terror. Um, others people use uh, the term jihadism. Uh, in fact, I would argue that we cannot understand the strategic predicament in which the United States uh, finds itself today, not only in Iraq and Afghanistan, but also in Pakistan, in Palestine, in Lebanon and Iran, without understanding this conceptual flaw, this dominant conceptual flaw in American foreign policy towards what we call Islamist militancy. And I'm going to talk a bit about this conceptual flaw because, um, I, in a way, I want to highlight the various historical and sociological trends within the Islamist movements by talking about the flaws in American foreign policy towards the movement uh, itself. Uh, again, I don't think you can understand the uh, choices, the foreign policy choices that we have made since 9-11 without understanding the dominant paradigm in American foreign policy since 9-11 about Islamist militancy, about jihadism, about al-Qaeda, uh, or uh, uh, terrorism. Uh, and in fact, this conceptual flaw lies at the heart of why the so-called war on terror has been very counterproductive to the very idea, the very goal, the very purpose of hammering a deadly uh, nail in the coffin of al-Qaeda. And I hope I will be able to, I mean, I know this is a tall order, I hope I will be able to make uh, to uh, some convincing uh, um, offers some convincing insights about the relationship between the conceptual flaw in American foreign policy and the counterproductive nature of American strategy toward al-Qaeda or Islamist uh, militancy. And again, I don't think we can understand the durability of this particular conceptual flaw in American foreign policy without really understanding, and I'm, I'm going to bore you a bit, uh, with what I call the marginalization of the academic community, and in particular, uh, the scholarly community on the Middle East when it comes to the study of Muslim militancy, Islamist militancy, al-Qaeda, and jihadism. That is, uh, most of us, and I'm, I'm not just whining because I, I have been barking for many, uh, I have not been marginalized, don't take me, uh, misunderstand me. But I think uh, since 9-11, I would argue a, 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 uh, a particular paradigm, a particular group of security-oriented commentators has taken hold and charge of the interpretation of Islamist militancy and Muslim uh, militancy. Um, and I think this particular, what I'm trying to aim here is that uh, those ideologues uh, basically not only lacked any nuanced and complex understanding of Muslim politics and Muslim sociology and history, but also they were really driven by ideologies and hubris. And again, um, I'll, see, I'll come to the history and historical sociology in a minute to highlight and, and, and basically this huge gap between the dominant paradigm in American foreign policy and the realities, the realities on the ground in the region. And I think in a way, it's not just we, students of the modern Middle East, have been uh, marginalized, but I would argue students of international relations, uh, students of comparative politics, students of American foreign policy, 
Um, and in particular, uh, students uh, of the Arab world and modern Arab history and modern uh, uh, Muslim history. Because remember, after 9-11, the very uh, uh, basically legitimacy of our enterprise was called into question. We failed, and we failed dismally. We failed because we did not uh, warn the empire about the impending storm, the storm of al-Qaeda and Islamist uh, militancy. Um, and since we failed, we must either retire to our ivory towers and a new basically group of security-oriented uh, uh, operate, operators were put uh, in charge. And also we were told, I mean, uh, the debate, as you know, since 9-11 that has been raging, we either had to be loyal foot soldiers in the unfolding war between the United States and the evildoers, or basically we better retire to our ivory towers. And most of us, unfortunately, most of my colleagues and most of us, we did retire to our ivory towers, and that's how I think the dominant paradigm in American foreign policy was put, was put uh, uh, in place between, 19, between 2001 and uh, the present. And I think, uh, as you know, the debate that raged since 9-11 really uh, focused in particular on the question that basically uh, uh, our scholarship uh, uh, did not really uh, help us, did not really equip us to uh, inform and educate our policymakers. I mean, right after 9-11, uh, uh, a major book came about the Ivory Towers and Middle Eastern scholarship. And basically, even the U.S. Congress debated the questions, the harm that we, students of the modern Middle East and international relations, have done to the study of American foreign policy and the Muslim world. This really goes to the very heart of the role of scholarship in policymaking. And I think one of the major lessons learned after 9-11 is that the scholarly community on the Middle East and international relations failed and failed dismally, not only because it was just bi biased. We had blinders. Uh, we were too close to our area studies. Um, as, I suppose, students, historians, and political scientists and international relations were supposed to predict the future as we somehow we, 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 we could have predicted that Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri and their cohorts would be able to uh, uh, carry out uh, earthquake operations against uh, the homeland. And it's not just, this is not just an academic question. What I'm really trying to say is that the reason why a particular paradigm uh, dominated American foreign policy, because the truth is most of us, uh, scholars and students of the modern Middle East, shied away from taking on this particular enterprise, the Islamist, the militant Islamist movement. And I think if you look at the most popular books in the field, basically were written by commentators and journalists. In fact, uh, one of the bestseller uh, book on Al-Qaeda was by a man called uh, Ruhana uh, Gunaratna. Uh, and in that particular book, Ruhana, not only he has never visited a single Middle Eastern country, not only does not speak any foreign language, it was a bestseller, still is a bestseller, and he played a key role in the construction of security apparatus in the United States after 9-11, and still is. He is used by our Justice Department to persecute dozens of cases throughout the United States and Europe. He is seen as uh, basically uh, a, a critical voice 
not only on Islamist militancy, but on Al-Qaeda and the Muslim world and Islam and so on. Again, I, 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 the reason why I'm really hammering this particular point, because what I'm trying to say is that after 9-11, the, the so-called the Al-Qaeda-centric approach was constructed. The Al-Qaeda-centric approach was constructed. Here was Al-Qaeda, and we dumped everything in this particular centric approach. So not only, not only in, in this particular approach was Al-Qaeda, we put all militant Islamists in this particular box. We not only put all militant Islamists, we put even also mainstream Islamists in this particular approach. We put Hezbollah, a nationalist Islamist group. We put Hamas, a nationalist Islamist group. We put the Muslim Brotherhood, the mainstream Islamist organization in the Muslim world. We lumped them all together under the rubric either Al-Qaeda or Islamofascism or Islamofascist. And then we constructed a, a particular policy to deal with this particular existential threat to American foreign policy and the American uh, homeland. Uh, and here, I want to break down one, what do I mean by the conceptual flaw in American foreign policy. I want to focus on three particular aspects in this particular dominant paradigm uh, since 9-11. Uh, and by focusing on the three aspects of the dominant conceptual flaw in American foreign pol policy, I want to explain, I, wanna, I hope to explain the uh, tensions and the contradictions and the differences and the nuances and the complexities within even the Islamist movement itself. And uh, just to, 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 to provide some historical sociology into the uh, movement, uh, uh, the Islam, what we call the militant Islamist movement or uh, 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 Islamist uh, militancy. I think one major aspect of this particular dominant paradigm in American foreign policy was that the Al-Qaeda-centric approach that gained the upper hand in the United States after 9-11, or what we call transnationalist jihadis or jihadists, uh, were an extension of a broader social movement that represents an existential threat to the United States of America and the homeland. So not only on 9-11 and after, the United States of America faced a French social movement composed of a few thousand fighters and militants, but rather the Al-Qaeda-centric approach enabled our policymakers and the foreign policy community that was in charge to basically portray the threat as existential, as viable, as durable, and such our actions should meet this particular menace to the United States of America. I mean, think about it for a minute. The Al-Qaeda-centric approach, at the height of its power, at the height of its power, in the 1990s, facts, Al-Qaeda never numbered more than three or 4,000 militants and fighters. A fringe, a fringe social movement, a fringe social movement that did not have does not have, never had, any viable, durable, social, broad, social base in the Muslim world. This is, these are the numbers of, of all the intelligence services and independent scholars about Al-Qaeda. At the height of power in the 1990s, again, a fringe, tiny, insidious, bloody killer movement. 
This is the extent of it. Yet, after 9-11, the paradigm that was packaged and sold to the American public, Al-Qaeda was an extension of a vicious, social, menace, evil, Islamo-fascism. You basically label this particular movement, and thus we had to act in order to meet this particular threat. Of course, I'm not suggesting at all that Al-Qaeda was not dangerous. Part of the mistakes most of us, or some of us made, uh, myself included, uh, when I was working on the Islamist movement, on the, remember I, I, I keep saying the, the, the militant Islamist movement, because there are many faces of political Islam. I mean, you have mainstream political Islamists who represent more than 90% of the, the social movement, and you have radical Islamists who represent about 5%, and you have militant or militarized Islamists who represent about 2 or 3% of the Islamist movement. I think the mistake I and, and, and a few others made before 9-11 is that we looked at the basically map of the Islamist movement in terms of numbers, and we said since Al-Qaeda and the transnational faction within the Islamist movement was tiny in terms of numbers, thus it was basically inconsequential. We did not, we equated basically efficacy with numbers. That was wrong. We, we never anticipated that even a tiny fringe social movement can do a great deal of harm, as we discovered on 9-11. All it takes, uh, I mean, just dozens of young, committed, and fanatical uh, men. <clears throat> but the truth is, Al-Qaeda itself and the transnational jihadist project was a desperate effort on a part of a small group within the militant Islamist movement uh, to basically rescue the sinking Islamist ship in the mid-1990s. What do I mean by that? Uh, it's a desperate, it was a desperate effort on the part of a small group, a tiny group called Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda Jihad. It was basically a, a, a merger between the Afghan uh, Mujahideen, the, Af the so-called Afghan Arabs, and some Egyptian and Yemeni and Saudi jihadis in the uh, mid-1990s. Uh, uh, as you know, since its inception in the 1950s, the so-called radical or militant Islamist movement, the major focal point of the militant Islamist movement since its birth in the 1950s was the near enemy as opposed to the far enemy. What do I mean by that? That between 1950 and 19 and the mid-1990s, the focus of the militant Islamist movement was on local Arab and Muslim state as opposed to the far enemy, that is the United States of America and its allies. Between 1955 or 1956 and 1996, the main goal, the main purpose, the main target of the militant Islamist movement was the near enemy as opposed to the far enemy, the United States and its allies. I mean, think about it the so-called global jihad, the so-called al-Qaeda that targeted the far enemy or the United States did not come into being since the mid-1990s. I mean, this is quite, I mean, conceptually fascinating. I mean, a first, a beginning question, why did the jihadist movement go global at this particular belated stage in its movement? I think it's a legitimate question to ask. When I began to research the topic in the 1990s, 
I could not, as, as, as late as 1995, I could not find a single theoretical document, not even a single theoretical document written by the ideologues and the conceptualizers of the Islamist movement on the far enemy. Not even a single document. In 1995, as late as the late 1995, the ideologue of the Islamist, the militant Islamist movement, Ayman Zawahiri, said the road to Jerusalem goes through Cairo and Algier. It doesn't go through Washington or Madrid or France. As late as the 19, 1995. And this tells you, and this tells you that the far enemy, that global jihad, was really a recent, a recent phenomenon. And we had to understand, I mean, of course, we did not. There was no debate, really. We, we, we could not even debate this particular question after 9-11. To ask the question, why did jihadis or jihadists decide to target the far enemy, the United States, um, after almost for more than, well, almost 40 years, the bulk, the overwhelming bulk of jihadis targeted the near enemy. And the question after 9-11 was not really asked. My book, The Far Enemy, Why Jihad, went global, did not really come out till 2005. I mean, the book, I could not have really written the book because most of the dominant books and articles that were written after 9-11 really focused on the narrow security question and the, the nature of the threat as articulated by ideologues and commentators. And, well, I suppose, understandably, the United States was, was uh, hit and hit very hard. The nation was wounded. And I think we were not in, in, in a mode or a, a mood to debate the questions, why did jihad go global? Why did uh, this aspect of the jihadist movement decided to target the United States uh, at this particular belated uh, stage? What I'm trying to say is that not only, not only the main conceptual focus of the militant Islamist movement was on the near enemy. There was no conceptual repertoire of ideas to tell us that somehow there was any interest in attacking the far enemy. Of course, uh, most militant Islamists and jihadis whom I interviewed, even in the early 1990s, had nothing positive to say about the United States of America. Uh, I mean, this particular uh, group of activists are really socialized into an anti imperial anti-foreign power paradigm. But even though, let's remember, um, that even though you might say that they, they were socialized into an anti-American mindset, I mean, we, the United States of America, and what we call, uh, I mean, a critical segment of the jihadist movement were in the same tranches between 1980 and 1990, that is, fighting uh, the common enemy, the evil empire, the Soviet Union. So not only there was no conceptual repertoire of ideas on the part of the jihadist movement to attack the United States, but in fact, for almost 10 years, the United States and a critical segment of the jihadist movement were in the same tranches in Afghanistan uh, fighting the uh, evil impasse. But let me say, between 1981 and 1995, the reason why the far enemy was not even on the radar screen of the jihadist movement, as you know, there were civil wars raging in Egypt and Algeria between the pro-Western authoritarian governments and the jihadist movement. Um, I mean, a major, major uh, struggle was taking place. Uh, remember, it all started by killing Anwar Sadat in 1981. Uh, and then, of course, uh, it culminated in uh, 1997 with multiple massacres in Egypt uh, and Algeria. 
But let me simplify, and I'm, I'm simplify, I hope I'm not distorting, by the mid-1990s. I mean, this particular civil war was concluded. The jihadis were strategically defeated on the battlefield in Algeria, in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, everywhere. The jihadis who targeted the near enemy were strategically defeated on the battlefields. Um, and the question when I was doing research in Algeria and Egypt in the mid-1990s, the question that was really debated within the militant Islamist movement, what to do? What do we do? What's to be done after our strategic defeat by the near enemy? The bulk, the bulk of the militant uh, who basically were waging uh, a war against the near enemy decided to call it quit. By the mid-1990s, 1995, 1996, uh, the jihadist movement in Egypt and Algeria declared a unilateral ceasefire. Really, it was a code word for surrender. They basically surrendered. They could not really match the coercive powers of the authoritarian pro-Western governments in Egypt and Algeria. But a tiny group, I mean, again, I, I, since I, I, let, me, let me add some historical sociology to it, just to give you some ideas what I'm talking about when I say the jihadist movements declared a unilateral ceasefire in, 19, in the mid-1990s in Egypt and Algeria and elsewhere. Uh, let me mention just uh, two leading jihadist groups, uh, the so-called Al-Gama'a al-Islamiyya in Egypt, the Islamic group that was waging a major war against the Egyptian government at the height of its power. In the mid-1990s, Al-Gama'a al-Islamiyya numbered more than 100,000 fighters. One single jihadist groups that targeted the Egyptian government numbered more than 1,000 fighters. I mean, this is what we were dealing with in terms of, I mean, here you have Al-Gama'a al-Islamiyya in Egypt, 100,000 fighters. And then you have Egyptian Islamic Jihad that was led by Ayman Zawahiri. It numbered about 25,000 fighters in the mid-1990s. And on the other hand, by the late 1990s, we were dealing with Al-Qaeda, between three and 4,000 uh, militants and fighters. This is the kind of universe uh, of, of tiny uh, uh, fringe social movements, and this is w some of the reasons, I'm just, you know, why we misunderstood and underestimated the, basically, the efficacy and the power and the reach, and the reach of the Al-Qaeda, the transnational wing within the Islamist movement. We looked at this particular map. Here you have Al-Gama'a al-Islamiyya, 100,000 strong fighters. You have Egyptian Islamic Jihad, 25,000. You have the Algerian uh, militants and Islamists numbered almost uh, 80,000 fighters. And then you have Al-Qaeda in the wadis and valleys in Afghanistan, numbering about three or 4,000 fighters. And we came to the conclusion that given the relative weight, social and political, and, and that we, we came to the conclusion, some of us, that Al-Qaeda was inconsequential in relation to the Egyptian uh, groups and the Algerian uh, groups as well. Anyway, let me come back to my basic point, is that the bulk, the bulk of the near enemy jihadis decided to call it quit by the mid-1990s, a tiny group, a tiny group decided to change the focus of the fight from the near enemy to the far enemy. In the late 1990s, the conceptual shift, the conceptual shift in the mindset of Al-Qaeda and the jihadis took place in this particular period. All the repertoire of ideas that we see within the Islamist movement really was basically written between 1995 
and 2001. Almost all the documents we have really is a product of the 1990s. And Ayman Zawahiri, in the 1990s, in the late 1990s, he was exchanging memos with some of his lieutenants, whom I interviewed in Egypt and Yemen and elsewhere. Ayman Zawahiri made the argument that the only way to rescue the sinking Islamist ship was to basically target the far enemy, the far enemy meaning the United States. And basically, he made the argument by targeting the far enemy, we basically, uh, the far enemy being, he called it the, the head of the snake, the head of the snake would lash out angrily against the ummah, being the Muslim community. And when the head of the snake lashes out against the ummah, quote, unquote, we would rise up and defend the ummah. This was in 1996, 1997. Ayman Zawahi was making the conceptual argument. Remember, the truth is the nerve center of the transnational jihadist faction is Ayman Zawahiri, the conceptualizer. In fact, the brain uh, and the nerve center of the transnational jihadist movement is Egyptian. Um, I mean, the, the home of the uh, militant Islamist movement is Egyptian. Um, that is, uh, all the conceptualizers, the master theoreticians of the Islamist movement have been Egyptians uh, since the uh, uh, birth of the movement in the 1920s. So the argument made by Ayman Zawahiri and Osama bin Laden, the only way to survive is to basically go after the United States of America and to change the dynamics of the social movement because Ayman Zawahiri, correctly so, came to the conclusion that the reason why the militant Islamist movement did not really win the war against the near enemy because the Islamist movement could not mobilize a broad segment of Muslim public opinion. In fact, yes, um, uh, I mean, in terms of, of, of military resources, the Islamist movement was no match to the coercive powers of the pro-Western governments. But really at the heart, the reason why the militant Islamist movement did not really succeed against the secular pro-Western authoritarian regimes, basically Muslim public opinion did not buy their vision, their blueprint for the society. That by the mid-1990s, Muslim public opinion came to realize, well, yes, we have evil here. The governments were oppressive, but surely the militants and the jihadis were a, 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 a greater evil than the existing oppressive governments, and Muslim public opinion made basically capped its uh, gamble on the existing uh, order. This brings me to the second aspect of what I called the conceptual flaw in American foreign policy, and, and this is... Uh, uh, that is, there was not only a great Muslim public support for 9-11 and Al-Qaeda after 9-11, the debate that basically unfolded in the United States. The big question after 9-11, where are the Muslim moderates? I mean, so many television segments. Why do they hate us so much? The two dominant questions on American television was, why do they hate us so much and where are the Muslim moderates? The idea was there was a great deal of Muslim public support for 9-11 and the Islamist movement. And as such, again, to come back to the central argument, that Al-Qaeda was an extension of a broader and more durable uh, social uh, movement. You know, what's really sad and tragic about, about this particular aspect of this conceptual flaw in American foreign policy is that on day one, the first cleric to denounce Al-Qaeda was Sheikh Fadlallah. Sheikh Fadlallah is the spiritual father of Hezbollah in Lebanon. The first statement 
the first statement to denounce Al-Qaeda on 9-11, and you have in my book, The Far Enemy, I have 60 pages, a footnote, just to document basically the denunciation of Al-Qaeda on 9-11 by top clerics and civil society leaders in the Muslim world, including, including what we call radical Muslim clerics who do not subscribe to the use of force in the service of politics, but they are, I mean, vehemently opposed to American foreign policy. And yet, I can't tell you how many times, how many op-ed pieces we have read by some of us, some, I mean, students of the modern Middle East, where were Muslim, the Muslim moderates? Not only, and here I want to, since my focus is on the militant Islamist movement, not only did the bulk of the clerical establishment in the Muslim world denounce Al-Qaeda after 9-11, including Tantawi and, and Yusuf Qardawi and Hassan Turabi. I mean, it's all, this is pub, part of the public record. When I went uh, to the region after 9-11, there was a consensus within the former jihadist movement that 9-11 was a disaster for the Islamist movement and for the Ummah, the Muslim community as well. In fact, the decommissioned Islamists who declared a ceasefire in the, the mid-1990s, they were terrified. They said, surely, if we could not take on the near enemy, if we were defeated by the near enemy, how could we take on the far enemy, the United States of America? Dozens of books, again, all part of the debate that's raging in the Arab world, hundreds of articles written by decommissioned leaders of the jihadist movement in the 1980s and 1990s. I mean, major books. I'm not talking about basically taking al-Qaeda and taking al-Qaeda to task and criticizing al-Qaeda for endangering the very survival of the Islamist movement and the Muslim Ummah as well. Uh, and the irony here is that, remember, after 9-11, on, Osama bin Laden expected a river of recruits to go to Afghanistan because, remember, the United States would lash out angrily against the Ummah, and then we would stand up. The river of recruits expected by al-Qaeda turned out to be a trickle of recruits to Afghanistan. You know, fewer than a dozen, fewer than a dozen of jihadist and Islamist fighters decided to go to Afghanistan and defend al-Qaeda after we decided to go after the Taliban. And this tells you, and this tells you how 9-11 and uh, al-Qaeda were perceived not only within Muslim public opinion, but also within the militant Islamist movement itself. That, I mean, I, in, in my book I talk about the civil war that was raging within the militant Islamist movement in the 1990s, uh, basically intensified and escalated after 9-11, because the most critical assets within the militant Islamist movement thought that Osama bin Laden and either Ayman Zawahiri were reckless, and they're really plunging the very Islamist movement into the brink of Abyss. This was really the consensus, and I'm talking about some of the most critical and vocal and important legitimate, legitimate forces uh, within the uh, uh, militant Islamist uh, movement. Yet, yet despite those, the, this important trend, the Al-Qaeda-centric approach was taking shape in the United States, in particular after the, uh, the uh, 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 toppling of the Taliban and a, a, a group of scholars and ideologues and security-oriented uh, operators decided to enlarge, expand the, the war against al-Qaeda and the Taliban and try to socially reconstruct the entire uh, Middle Eastern, uh, uh, the Arab and Middle Eastern uh, social uh, uh, order. Uh, how much time do I have? Um, ten minutes. So All right.
Uh, plenty, plenty of time. The point I'm trying to make, and, and I hope you know, we'll, we'll talk about it, you quiz me about it, because this is it's a very contentious debate, as you know. I mean, this is, this is, there are uh, two narratives competing for, for uh, attention in the last few years. The argument, and, 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 and we have made after 9-11, in particular after the toppling, that Al-Qaeda was in a coma after 9-11. Al-Qaeda was in a coma by 2002, not only because the United States of America we basically unleashed our military might against al-Qaeda and the international community. Al-Qaeda was in a coma because it was internally encircled in the Muslim world. Al-Qaeda, if al-Qaeda could not inspire and incite the bulk of decommissioned militants who basically waged a bitter and costly war against the near enemy for almost 20 years, how could al-Qaeda inspire a large number of young Muslims to wage war against the head of the snake or the far enemy? Truly. We could have easily slayed the beast after 9-11 because al-Qaeda was internally encircled. There was no public, no Muslim support for al-Qaeda. How could al-Qaeda survive given the, the hammering, the military hammering of al-Qaeda that was taking place in Afghanistan, in Yemen, in Saudi Arabia, in Europe? I mean, this was a major war. And you remember, uh, I mean, there was a great deal of empathy with the United States. And even those who disagreed with the American invasion of Afghanistan, basically, I would argue that uh, mainstream public opinion did accept the fact that the war was legitimate, that the Taliban in Afghanistan did uh, shelter uh, al-Qaeda. Even, even uh, 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 Yusuf, uh, 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 Yusuf Qaradawi, uh, when the United States, after the United States, Yusuf Qaradawi is one of the most uh, uh, influential uh, uh, Muslim cleric in the Muslim world uh, today. He made the argument that yes, we would have preferred the United States to basically take Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden to courts, to Islamic courts, but that we understand that this is a war. Uh, we understand what the United States, even though we disagree with this particular war. And of course, this then comes the, the third aspect of what I call, and this is the final of the, of the uh, uh, conceptual flaw in our reading uh, of 9-11, and that's really expanding our war the so-called the war on terror. This is not just about Iraq. I mean, re remember, the reason why you went to Iraq, Iraq was the weakest in the link. Iraq was, uh, you might say, the battlefield where Condoleezza Rice, we will strike at the heart of the geographic region that gave rise to this particular type of terror. We are really fighting in Iraq in order to basically uh, uh, send uh, messages, powerful messages and warnings to also Iraq's neighbors, in particular Iran and Syria, and try to socially reconstruct the region on new foundations. You call it democracy, or Jeffersonian democracy, um, and so on. Let's look at the cost. I, I don't have plenty of time. Let's look at, at the cost, and I know you know most of the, I mean, the debates that uh, the cost of the expansion of the American war on terror in Iraq. Let, let's look at, first of all, I would say, since I'm, my topic, I want to keep the focus on my topic, the future of Islamist militancy. Uh, that is, it was really a godsend uh, uh, opportunity for al-Qaeda, our invasion of Iraq. It has not just provided al-Qaeda with new recruits, but more important, remember, from a conceptual point of view, it, the, the, our invasion and occupation of Iraq has given al-Qaeda new ideological ammunition to use against the United States of America. Um, I mean, I go to the Middle East and I ask, well, I mean, the United States is fighting a war against al-Qaeda, and the first question the first thing I, I hear, well, so what does the United States 
what's the United States doing in Iraq in the first place? If the United States is fighting al-Qaeda, why did you go to Iraq uh, to basically uh, demolish and topple a, a, a government that basically never intended to do harm to the United States of America? From al-Qaeda in a comma, as we know now, al-Qaeda has revived, of course, has revived in a very limited manner. Remember, al-Qaeda is a very tiny security nuisance. Al-Qaeda does not represent then and now. We're talking about a very, a very uh, minor security uh, nuisance. Not only al-Qaeda has revived, one of the most important, I mean, uh, militant Islamist theaters in the world today is Iraq. Uh, Iraq now, I mean, one of the largest and most durable Islamist uh, theater is in Iraq today. That is, this is a new wave of Islamist militancy. And every, I can tell you, I mean, I have interviewed in the last two years hundreds of teenagers, Muslim teenagers, between the ages of 14 and 17 years old, who are desperately trying to raise a few hundred dollars to take either a bus ride or a flight to the Syrian-Iraqi border and join the fight against the United States of America. I mean, I would argue, uh, if it was not for logistical and financial reasons, the flow of young men to Iraq would exceed the flow of young Muslims to Afghanistan in the 1980s. I can't tell you the extent of ideological mobilization that exists in that part of the world, and this is across the board. And most of those kids I'm interviewing, I and others, and our intelligence services know this nonsense, most of them had nothing to do with either al-Qaeda or Islamist militancy. They have been militarized and radicalized as a result, in fact, of the moral outrage that the Muslim community uh, feels after 9-11. And in this particular sense, I don't need to go and, and tell you about the legitimacy gap that exists in that part of the world. Most important of everything else, our invasion has radicalized and militarized mainstream Muslim public opinion as opposed to radical Muslim opinion. The reason why we are seeing now a great deal of interest uh, to go to Iraq and fight the coalition forces, because I think now uh, you might say the American-led invasion occupation of Iraq has created conducive, I mean, conditions. That is, Muslim public opinion now is very tolerant because, after all, our invasion is seen as part of a, an imperial campaign uh, uh, to go, I mean, to, to uh, basically dominate and subjugate uh, Islam uh, and Muslims. Um, and unfortunately, even though uh, al-Qaeda uh, still boxed in and besieged in the, on, along the, the Pakistan-Afghan uh, uh, borders, I, will, I would argue that the third wave that has, that was, that has been born as a result of our uh, invasion, occupation of Iraq, it's really, this is, a, I mean, a topic in flux. We have been, of course, collecting information, interviewing some people, but everything, I mean, this is a, a, a movement uh, that is in, 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 in flux, um, and I wonder whether this particular movement will, would, would come to haunt us in the same way that the so-called Afghan Arabs came to haunt us after the end of the uh, Afghan uh, wars in, in uh, 1989. I want to conclude. I know I wish we had had more time for history, and, and I want to conclude by putting some big ideas, some conceptual ideas on the table and see whether we, we can make sense of this really fluctuation of this fringe social movement, um, how it has evolved and developed and mutated in the last 50 years or so. I think if one of the, the most important lessons I have learned from studying this fringe social movement is that it's constantly in flux. Uh, it has evolved and mutated and continued to mutate.
from 1955 to 1995 or 1996, the main enemy was the near enemy, local and Arab and Muslim governments. From 1996 to the present, the enemy is the far enemy, the United States. In the last few years, militants and jihadists are targeting both the near enemy and the far enemy. That is, you have, I mean, if you look at the, 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 the types of attacks taking place in Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan, there is really no longer any distinction between the near enemy and the far enemy. I mean, we, we have witnessed, we, we are seeing a mutation, a deep mutation taking place within the, uh, uh, within the movement itself. In fact, I would argue now that the threat has shifted from the so-called Al-Qaeda Central, at most Al-Qaeda Central. The Al-Qaeda of Osama bin Laden, Ayman Zawahiri, do not really control more than two or 300 men, basically hibernating deep in the mountains and valleys of Afghanistan and Pakistan. In fact, what has happened now, the third wave, that is the wave that has been born after the American-led invasion occupation of Iraq, is an entirely, truly virgin terrain. And we are all trying to understand the social contours of this particular movement. I can, later on in the question and answer session, we can talk about how this particular wave or generation differ from the first two generations, the near enemy and then the far enemy. Uh, I think also, what, what, despite all the fluctua fluctuations and mutations, what really strikes me about this particular fringe movement is that doctrine and ideology are the two most important constants in this movement. This is really a solidly middle-class uh, movement, a movement that basically driven, I mean, the beast is driven by ideas and ideology and Islamic certain interpretations of Islamic text. This is not driven by economic or social. I mean, the first question when, when I began to research, when I, I tried to create a kind of social profiling, and I, I kept asking the leaders, some of the leaders of the movement, about their background, social backgrounds, their fathers, their mothers, what kind of jobs, and, and one of the top leaders of the movement, I, I have, he said, well, stop, uh, I mean, he said to me, please leave your Marxist training at home. Uh, this is not really, we're not in it because of jobs. We're not in it because of unemployment. We are in it because we want to create an entirely, a more authentic order, a more authentic uh, 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 system that takes into, our, into account our deepest values. And, and in this particular sense, whether it was the first generation that is the near enemy, the Al-Qaeda generation of the far enemy, or the, the wave in my limited interviews, what, what's constant about this particular movement, ideology, ideas, doctrine, in particular Islamic uh, doctrine. Also, what, what alarms me deeply, I mean, I made the point, one of, one of the biggest points really is that the movement has always been a fringe elitist movement. This particular movement was naturally born in the ghettos of the Arab and Muslim cities. It was born in the top universities in the Arab and Muslim world. I want you to know that the top rank and file of this particular movement, some of the most educated and the brightest kids in the Arab and Muslim world are basically the members of this particular movement. This is really an aristocratic movement, whether it was Ayman Zawahiri or uh, Muhammad Hafs or uh, Osama bin Laden or Muhammad Habib. Or, or, I mean, the, the bulk of this particular movement is an elitist movement. And what I am seeing, and this is probably tentative, it's not scientific, is that we are seeing the migration of the ideology of Islamist militancy into the urban poverty belts of Arab and Muslim cities. And this is very alarming because the reason why, one of the points I have tried to make is that the reason why the movement has not really been able to deliver a major blow against either the near enemy or the far enemy, it's not a durable social movement. That its base, social base, is very limited, has always been limited. 
My fear is that the more it migrates to the urban poverty belts of Arab and Muslim cities, we could be witnessing, we might witness a bigger and a greater threat, in particular if the situation continues as it is at home, given the, op the oppressive nature of Arab and Muslim governments, given the perception that the United States of America is waging a, a, a crusade against Islam and Muslims, and giving also the uh, uh, dysfunctions of state institutions that exist uh, in the region. And finally, the final point I want to make is that, as I suggested earlier, the movement has reached a theoretical stalemate. And I come back to the conceptual. Remember, this particular movement, because it's, it's basically wrapped its rhetoric and actions in religion, it needs conceptual legitimization. It cannot function without conceptual legitimization. First, there was the near enemy, and there was a repertoire of ideas that basically uh, 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 given or written in order to legitimize the war against the near enemy. Then there was the far enemy, and you had a repertoire of ideas. Where to now? Where does the movement go now? This particular, from the near enemy to the far enemy, the movement is reaching a conceptual statement. And my hope is that uh, not only we're going to see slow mutation, but in fact, there is a real, a real opportunity, a real chance that the movement uh, will likely uh, expire gradually and systematically if the United States and its allies show creativity, intelligence, and most of all, if we show uh, military, military restraint, both in Pakistan, in Iraq, and elsewhere. I want to stop here. I've taken much more time than I was given. Thank you so much. It's, uh... <laughs> You know, I mean, this is really has been part of the, as you know, after 9-11, two paradigms uh, basically clashed in the United States. The paradigm, truly, I mean, I, I, it was fascinating to, to really watch this unfolding debate between the Palestine paradigm and the Iraq paradigm. Uh, some of us argued that really the most effective means to slay the beast was to basically go the Palestine road, to basically try to really invest uh, adequate political and economic capital in basically putting an end to the shedding of Jewish and Palestinian blood. Because most of us who work, we tend to be, we, we realize that even though, even if you resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, uh, you're going to have some tensions and some violence. But I would say, and the consensus in my community of students on the Middle East, 85% of the tensions and the poison that exists in that part of the world is related to the Palestine-Israeli question. It's an ideologically... Uh, uh, a powerful question in a part of the world, and it has been used and abused, and it has been legitimately so, I mean, given the, 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 the critical nature of the crisis. Unfortunately, I mean, as you know, the dominant paradigm was that the road to Palestine goes through Baghdad, and that was Paul Wolfowitz, and I mean, he, he was the, the architect of the entire. And I think, as you know, we are seeing, we're coming back, I mean, even the president, the, the Hamilton Baker uh, report, um, the president has come uh, of course, uh, not explicitly, by acknowledging the fact that the road to Palestine, the road to security, 
the road to preserving American interests does not go through Baghdad. We must really invest, uh, I mean, serious capital, political capital in. Uh, the only problem is, for the last six years or so, the administration neglected the Palestine-Israeli question. The situation is very dismal. Um, I mean, you know the escalation. Um, I think it's going to take many years uh, to repair the damage that has been done in the last six years, because as a result of the tensions, you have now Hamas, um, a militant nationalist Islamist movement that is in charge. It has become a, a critical player in this particular field. Uh, but I, my take on it, and I am very biased on this, is that it is the critical, one of the most critical pivotal factor in the equation, not only in the social configuration of power relations in the, region, in the region, but also in relations between the United States and the Muslim world. And that's why tackling the question, it's not just good uh, on its own by, I mean, stopping the shedding of Jewish and Palestinian blood, but I would argue it would uh, decrease the tensions, it would improve America's relations with that part of the world. Yes? Maybe, uh, maybe uh, because I, I, I was trying to, as you said, uh, focus on the big points, I'm sure I, I simplified a great deal. But let me, let me uh, address your question directly. Uh, Qutb was a near enemy uh, ideologue and conceptualizing. In fact, I'm writing a book now on Sayyid Qutb. It's called The Genealogy of Revolutionary Islam, Sayyid Qutb and His Disciples. Uh, in fact, after... The execution of Sayyid Qutb in uh, 1966 by the Nasser regime, a few months later, the first jihadist cell in the Arab world was established by a high schooler called Ayman Zawahiri. He invited five of his high school friends to join the movement in order to exact revenge against the near enemy in Egypt. So even Ayman Zawahiri, Ayman Zawahiri and Sayyid Qutb, even Ayman Zawahiri today remains a deeply, deeply entrenched in the idea of the near enemy. And... One of the big points I try to make is that, in fact, really the focus on the far enemy was by necessity, not by any theoretical ideological uh, disposition on the part of Ayman Zawahi. And one of the points, one of the quotes I gave, I, I, I said, as late as 1995, the same Ayman Zawahi who raves about the United States of America said, the road to Jerusalem goes through Cairo and Algeria. That is, he still, in 1995, the shifts, the conceptual shifts that basically emerge within the movement were related to the strategic defeat of the near enemy jihadists in Egypt, in Algeria, and elsewhere. So theoretically speaking, we're really talking about the near enemy. There is no repertoire of ideas. There was no repertoire of ideas against the United States of America. The second question about Saddam Hussein. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, 
as you know, uh, I mean, uh, the, the invasion, uh, the American invasion uh, of Iraq was really more of an ideological construct, uh, a project that was in place long before 9-11. 9-11 enabled the group of ideologues to basically put it in the pipeline. Uh, I don't need to refer you, you know, um, on, the, on the, f the following the morning after 9-11 when the clerk uh, was in the National Security Council, even the president, uh, you know, he was told by Paul Wolfowitz, uh, you know, the high-value target is Iraq, uh, not Afghanistan. Even during the, 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 the I mean, uh, the height of the bombings of Afghanistan, Rumsfeld used to scream in the, give me high-value targets. I need high-value targets. And the, um, Afghanistan was okay, but, I mean, uh, Afghanistan was not in the, in the heart of the Arab and Muslim world, and they wanted to really show that uh, what happened on 9-11, uh, they wanted to send a message to both friends and, and enemies and also try to, the ideological notion to reconstruct the entire region on new foundation, because you see that the reason why I focused on the, the conceptual flaw, the idea is that the reason why Al-Qaeda attacked us on 9-11, because somehow there were some rotten genes, some, some I mean, we had to plant Jeffersonian uh, seeds in the heart of the Arabian desert. Uh, once we do so, you'll have prosperity and peace, you'll have, this was the whole idea, the, the ideological notion. I, I myself don't subscribe to the oil uh, idea, even though, I mean, uh, so, so uh, yes, uh, I mean, the story is going to take us uh, a while, I mean, the, the story of Iraq and how uh, uh, war uh, happened. But really, I mean, yes, I might have stereotyped a great deal and simplified a great deal. But I think my thesis still stands on, and my thesis on the Islamist movement, the tensions, the contradictions, the, fragil the fragility of the militant Islamist movement, and how global jihad really is a recent phenomenon, is not really deeply entrenched either in Islamic thought uh, or even Sayyid Qutb thought. That there's no, um, in my interviews with the disciples, Sayyid Qutb is the most important ideologue in the Islamist movement. Uh, and if there's really one book I would like you to read is Milestones. Uh, milestone to the Islamist movement is what the Communist Manifesto is to Marxism. Uh, I mean, he is really the, the, the most important, uh, even not just in the Arab world, throughout the Muslim world. And my point is really global jihad. Uh, there's no, no foundation, no repertoire in that part of the world. Uh, Al-Qaeda itself was uh, an extension, was part of the mutation that took place within the Islamist movement. Please. Yes, two things. Uh, one is that uh, Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden came on the radar scene after 1993, one of the twin towers that one of the bombs exploded. Then came the Nairobi and Tanzania. <coughs> Embassies at which Clinton bombarded both Sudan and some of the camps in Afghanistan. That's one thing that he was on the radar screen much earlier than probably late 1990. Uh, Ahmad Shah was invited by the, he was one of the, the leaders of the Afghan resistance at one point, fighting against the Taliban. Uh, he went and gave a talk at the, at the what's called the European Parliament. And he mentioned the threat coming from the Al-Qaeda at that time, but people did not listen to it. And the other point is that uh, you're absolutely right, that the, the Al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan never grew more than about 4,000, 4,000. At the height of its power, yes. At the height of their yes. power. Right now, in, they are in Pakistan, in those, between Afghanistan and Pakistan. In the, in the, in the, in the what do you call the February elections, the Islamist parties in Afghanistan were so badly defeated by yeah, of two course. particular parties, of Pakistan People's Party and the Muslim League Party. So it 
You know, I, 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 since you're, I, let me, let me throw some uh, more, I, I don't really want to provoke you and see what, what you think I, uh, since we're, uh, you know, up to 1995, 1995, Osama bin Laden was vehemently opposed to targeting American civilians. He was on record up to 1995 that while he was in Sudan that we would not use terrorism, uh, we would not use, we would not target American uh, citizens, 1995, while he was Sudan. I mean, I'm not gonna, uh, uh, the, the emphasis, I mean, uh, it was really Ayman Zawahiri who played a key role in convincing uh, uh, Osama bin Laden, the whole notion. Um, the, I mean, the idea is that two critical factors really, in, I mean, take, the truth is, if you, if you and probably what I'm going to say probably is, is out of place here, if you really cancel the insidious tactics used by Al-Qaeda, I mean, the, the so-called suicide bombings, horrible, insidious, really Al-Qaeda boils down to an anti-colonial movement. I mean, the rhetoric of Osama bin Laden, I mean, if, if, if we cancel the, the, the bloody, horrible, uh, there's really nothing unique about Al-Qaeda in, in, as historians and sociologists and political scientists. What's unique about Al-Qaeda? Al-Qaeda basically sells and brands itself as an anti-colonial. Uh, in fact, to me, and I know it's very difficult to say it outside of the academic, uh, up to 1990, Osama bin Laden was the main contact man between the Saudi intelligence authorities and the Pakistan intelligence authorities and our intelligence authorities. The break, the rupture that took place, it was 1991. And you know what happened in 1991. Osama bin Laden left Saudi Arabia after we, not only we, we, we sent 500,000 troops to liberate Kuwait from Iraqi forces, but we decided to station troops in the heart of Islam, that is Saudi Arabia. And I don't need to tell you about what Saudi Arabia means uh, for Muslims. I mean, it, it's, it's the Mecca and Medina of the Muslim world, it's, it, and so on and so forth. It was at that particular moment. He, he, I mean... I mean, I, I call them religious nationalists, really. I mean, the truth is, I mean, we, we tend to put a, a great deal of emphasis on religious, but those are really political animals first and foremost. I mean, even Ayman Zawahri, I mean, if you read their rhetoric, of course, they dress and wrap their, their rhetoric with religious uh, uh, justification and, and, and rationalization. But first and foremost, jihadis, uh, I mean, in fact, if you look at their backgrounds, it's unbelievable. Every bloody jihadis I interviewed was, as a teenager, were all nationalists. Fans of Gamal Abdel Nasser and the nationalist, the pan-Arab nationalist movement. The shift, the rupture that took place in the Arab world and the Muslim world after 1967, that, that watershed, that rupture. Here you have a dynamic Jewish state defeating all the Arab states together. And you had a major ideological shift from nationalism, secular nationalism, uh, to Islamism. Let me come back to the, the question about, I mean, here, in, it was in 1991 that he left. But up to, he went to Pakistan, and he, was, he could not stay in Pakistan, then he, was, he, he went to Sudan. And while he was in Sudan, he was, of course, trying to build an infrastructure, um, a, a, a major uh, uh, terrorist infrastructure. But even in 1995, he was on record saying that at this particular stage, we have no intention of targeting American citizens. The shift really came in 1996. I tend to believe, I mean, that's my own, and I probably this is a nonsensical point, is that he came to the conclusion that the United States was really uh, after... I mean, we expelled them, we forced them out of Sudan. We put tremendous pressure uh, on the Sudanese government to expel him, he and his family. And the militarization and the further radicalization of Osama bin Laden really took place after his expulsion from Sudan 
to Pakistan, Afghanistan, he made the argument that, of course, they want war, let them have war, it's total war. That was, that's not to say that the man was not, I mean, socially uh, 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 had a particular mindset to be a, a, a first-class terrorist. He was, but, I mean, what I'm suggesting is that we have to, not, we have to be tough <coughs> asking questions about, basically, what has transpired uh, in the last 30 years and how this particular movement that was totally and overwhelmingly focused on the near enemy shifted gears and decided to attack the far enemy. This is when we ask questions, as you know, I mean, it's not to rationalize and justify, but rather to understand. And, and also to try to understand, because I, I say to you is that what I see, and this is tentative, and probably because I'm, I'm trying to go to the other extreme, because we, we, we misunderstood um, international uh, jihadism in the 1990s, that what we are seeing in Iraq probably is as horrible, as alarming, in fact, more alarming, and has more potential for blowback than the so-called the Afghan Arab phenomenon in the, 19, uh, in the 1990s. Yes? I heard you suggest that um, the U.S. needs to exercise military restraint in the future in Iraq, and I'm wondering if you could make a more precise statement about what that means. Does it mean an unconditional and immediate withdrawal? Does it mean a gradual withdrawal under certain conditions of military forces? Does it mean the replacement of military forces with some kind of display of soft power? As you know, very difficult. It's really, we're speculating. We, we, I mean, I, I, I believe that the most difficult, I mean, I think the, the, the most challenging uh, question is how do you fill the security vacuum created by the exit of American troops and how do you protect Iraqi civilians after the exit of American troops? Uh, I mean, even, you know, some of us who opposed the war from long before, I mean, uh, I mean, we find ourselves in a, in a, in a, in a very difficult uh, bind. Uh, I mean, what are the mechanisms, what are the outlets that we can put in place in order to really provide protection to Iraqi civilians after the exit of American troops? Uh, we, have, we have heard so much about, I think my take on it is that the sooner we leave Iraq, the better. Because I think, first of all, this, I mean, whether stay or leave, uh, turmoil will remain part of Iraq for the next five or ten years. Iraq is going through the painful birth banks of a new society, a new uh, social order, a new political order. So, in fact, I would argue that we, we have become part of the, the problem, um, and I think uh, if we can distance ourselves and try to find ways to fill the security vacuum, bring about neutral Muslim states, uh, try to really convince a host of Muslim states like Malaysia, Indonesia, in particular, and Bangladesh to really feel the uh, try to have a new elections in Iraq to invest uh, the Iraqi government with uh, legitimacy. Uh, um, and I, I am a supporter. I mean, I, 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 of all the, 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 the presidential candidates I've seen, the pro I think uh, Senator Barack Obama's plan makes a great deal of sense to me because he talks about orderly and a gradual uh, withdrawal from Iraq. He's talking about uh, having 15, 16 months a brigade uh, every one or two months, uh, keeping the situation in a, in a dynamic, uh, engaging the international community, changing the rhetoric and discourse of the United States, deepening our social and political investments, keeping a limited force in Baghdad in order to, I mean, help the Iraqi government if any, any major existential threat, uh, and bringing in 
regional players to really, uh, but again, there are so many difficult variables, as you know. Uh, it, it will really, I mean, uh, but I, whether we stay or leave, I mean, I, I don't think we should, we, we should even envision an order that's less violent than the, the order that exists today. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for your question because, I mean, we, we, I mean I, you said I, I was really, it's a broad brush. I didn't have the time to go into the history. Uh, the truth is, uh, and this is my own, the jihadist movement has never had any vision for its society. It, I mean, to use a term that I, I dislike very much, it's a dead end. Uh, it truly is. I mean, it, it's a very, it's a reactionary, regressive movement entrenched in, in, in pain and blood and, and, and agony um, and a longing for a golden age that existed for a very limited uh, period of time. So even, even, the, 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 even at the height of its power in the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s, um, it's really a vacuous movement. It's more about uh, kind of a, a, a utopian order. It's an ideal model, the Viberian ideal model of, of the golden age of or the age that really never existed in reality. Uh, but even, even then, if you look at the third wave, um, the, my interviews, and again, limited interviews, I want you to know it's becoming extremely difficult. And not just even some of us who, I mean, we're there. We, I, I have spent many years in the field. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm there. I'm a local. I'm, I'm not just, uh, I, I don't really, when I go there, I'm, I'm, because I... Uh, I'm interviewing kids who are illiterate, literally illiterate. No religious education, no formal education. I mean, even classical Arabic, when I speak, they have difficulty articulating themselves. And the point I ended my talk about how, I mean, the ideology of militancy migrating into the urban, the, the, the slum areas in Arab and Muslim cities. I mean, the, I don't know if you follow the, the nature of the attacks. I mean, the the, the just uh, uh, nonsensical nature of the attacks have taken place in Morocco and Algeria and Jordan. Um, those kids, I mean, and that's why, um, I mean, if you look at the first and the second generation, the generation of Sayyid Qutb, the Ayman Zawahiri, and the second generation, the Afghan Arab generation, uh, they were at least versed in certain interpretation of Islamic attacks. They wanted to create... Uh, they wanted to create states based on the Sharia or uh, certain aspects of the Sharia. This particular generation, this particular wave is, I mean, truly, I mean, it is, you're talking about the lowest uh, uh, part of the, the, the social composition in, in Arab and Muslim cities. And that's why you can't really understand, I mean, think of what hap has happened in the last uh, five years. More than 1,000 suicide bombings have taken place in Iraq since... Uh, more than 1,000. I mean, if you put all the suicide bombings in history, 19th century Russia, uh, the Tamil, to Hamas, to uh, Jihad, to Hezbollah, all of them together, in Iraq alone, it set a world record in suicide bombings. And my argument, and I don't know, this is really not based on any scientific, you cannot understand this, I mean, monstrous intensification of suicide bombings without understanding, I mean, the nature, the social composition of the third wave. 
They're really being used. They're not equipped to do anything. They're being used as, as human bombs. Once they cross from Jordan or Iraq into Iraq, they're just basically suicide bombers because they, they're not trained in any kind of... They have no skills, no social skills, no educational skills, no military skills, nothing at all. So they, most of them end up, and some of the, I mean, the, the families I interviewed in Palestinian camps in Lebanon and Syria and Lebanon, they're basically... Uh, they're, most of them are being used as, as really human bombs. And this tells you about mutations within the movement and where the movement today and the danger, uh, well, the dangers and the opportunities as well. Because, uh, I mean, I would argue, based on what I have seen, that the jihadist movement does not have the means at this particular moment to do what al-Qaeda did in the mid-1990s and the late 1990s. Thank you very much. Thank you.